Well, hello and welcome to The Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey and uh, joining me is co-host Peter Bale. Peter, great to see you. Bernard, it's excellent to see you too. You're slightly pixelated where I am, but you know, hopefully we will make this work this time. I'm told that the post-reconstruction version last week with Simon was actually really good, but I, I'm very grateful for everybody who stayed on and was patient with us last week as we try to professionalize this without removing some of the spontaneity. Yes, we're on the high wire and we're clinging on and smiling as we do it. <laughs> well, Bernard, I was actually also really struck. I, I met a chap called Steve who will be in the audience, I hope, yesterday on the ferry home from Waiheke. And he said, you're Peter Bale, aren't you? I really like the uh, Hoon. I'm a really loyal listener. And he gave us a good, you know, he said he didn't mind the fuck ups that we had last week. And he was very kind about that. And then last night I was at an event at the spinoff and met another chap who said, oh, that Hoon is just bloody fantastic. So, you know, wow. if I can bump into two people in one day in Auckland, one on the ferry and one at some sort of, you know, slightly left wing uh, media outlet, we're doing all right, I think. Or we're doing something. Yes. And we are doing something. It is uh, really lovely to see you all. And Peter, we're going to start off with you and in particular, um, jumping into no, the... No, you've got it slightly around the wrong way, Bernard, because I think you, I think our running order oh. is actually, well, and it's international. It's the oh, international yes. panel yes. on climate change. And they're warning this week that 1.5 is at risk and that this is, you know, we're in the, we're in what a guy called David Meller once described in, who uh, was a ridiculous cabinet minister in England, described as the last chance saloon. And I think we've got Bronwyn on to talk about that. We'll talk about some New Zealand stories. And at half past uh, five, we're going to bring in um, the rather amazing friend of mine, Natalia Antalava from Coda Story in Georgia in Tbilisi to talk about Georgia, why we probably should have stopped Putin in 2008, but chose not to. Uh, what the consequences of that are, and then her observations about, you know, she's a long-standing observer, reporter about Putin. She covered the downing of the uh, Malaysian airliner in uh, Ukraine. She's right across the story, and I think she will be a fabulous combination with our old friend of the pod, as they say on the proper podcasts, um, Professor Robert Patman, who everybody loves. Yeah, now we're really looking forward to a big week this week, and in particular, the IPCC report, which didn't get an enormous amount of coverage, and maybe it should have, and we're very lucky um, this week to hopefully have Bronwyn Haywood on. She is the political science and environment academic at mm -hmm. Canterbury University, who actually helped write the IPCC report. And um, she'll be able to tell us what that means. She is a, a very uh, wide-ranging um, view on this, but also yeah. gets into the weeds of what has actually gone on with the IPCC report. Yeah, it's quite interesting. But I, I, I've been trying to test one of Robert Patman's theories this week, which I, I will uh, talk about. Which is not really it doesn't. I haven't done it yet. But for my next North and South column, I'm doing a story about the high seas treaty, which um, New Zealand was quite instrumental on. I want to be really careful about these kind of plucky little New Zealand, you know, cuts across and manages to have a multilateral approach where everybody, you know, are big bullies and we just slice through. But actually, there's some truth in that. And it sounds like Bronwyn really does that as well. It's a really interesting idea that that sort of climate diplomacy, environmental diplomacy is something that New Zealand's actually very, very good at. 
Um, you might remember Chris Beebe when we were kids, who was very prominent in the uh, Antarctic Treaty and the and the Law of the Seas. So you know, New Zealand does have, and also of course, New Zealand has the I think the second largest um, economic zone in the world in the in the oceans. So we have a really good stake in this, and of course, New Zealand was instrumental in the ozone pact, or in the pact, you know, to reduce chlorofluorocarbons in the in the, uh, in the atmosphere uh, in order to deal with the ozone layer. And I, I find that a very constructive way to deal. Oh, there's Bronwyn. Oh, fantastic. Bronwyn, I was just saying, I was just, I'm Peter Bayer, I don't think we've met yet. I was just saying that I was interviewing Victoria Hallam this week from the, from MFAT about the High Seas Treaty. And Bernard was, was bigging you up just now about how prominent you are with the IPCC. And I just, it's very interesting to me, this, this idea that New Zealand can have a prominent role in what you might call climate and environmental diplomacy. I'm not sure if it's prominent, but actually I will say that Helen Plume from the Ministry for the Environment, who's the government representative, so I'm independent Mm -hmm. on the science side, so it's just coincidental that I'm a New Zealander rather than I represent New Zealand. But Helen has served New Zealand for many years, and this has been her last meeting for the IPCC. She served on amazing number of environmental initiatives as a diplomat and a science voice, and it was a privilege to watch her in action mm-hmm. at this round of meetings. She's very calm and very judicious, and her voice just cuts through a very crowded mm. environment mm. of tension. It's quite remarkable. So, Bronwyn, I was wondering if you could um, give us the good juice on what was new in the IPCC report this week, and in particular, you know, what message people were trying to get across. Well, not a lot of the report is actually new. What it does is it summarises the last six years, well, the eight years' worth of work, but the six reports that we've produced. But what is special about this report is that it's a sort of a short version of thousands of pages where governments sign off line by line which of the key policy messages they will agree to collectively. The governments have agreed that it's this decade that's critical, and that's really important language because they could have argued that the next 20 years matters but they collectively agreed it's what we're doing now that counts. They also collectively agreed that with the science that we will, as likely as not, break through the 1.5 in the early 2030, certainly before 2040. And they also agreed to that best practice is what we call in climate resilient development, which is the integration of adaptation and mitigation action. And interestingly, they also all agreed, and that's 196 countries, that those decision-making practices are best when they are inclusive and that when they're informed by local knowledge Mm -hmm. and Indigenous knowledge. There's been a big emphasis on Indigenous knowledge in this round of reports. They've also emphasised this role of cities as being a site globally for solutions. So I think Because our profile is so skewed towards agriculture, there's a couple of big things that we've lost sight of as a country. We've lost sight of the fact that 70% of Mm -hmm. global carbon emissions come from cities. So cities are a really significant site of climate leadership, and that makes things a bit more achievable for people who are feeling overwhelmed. We really need climate leadership at the level of mayors and councillors and community groups. But they have also agreed that methane matters, that 
if we're going to try and get mm-hmm. our emissions down, it's an and, and, not an and, and then. So we need to use all the tools we've got to reduce emissions. And because methane is a fierce, fast-acting gas, it is important that we reduce methane from all sources now. And rapid and deep emissions apply to a methane as well. Now, I've spent quite a bit of time on social media today dealing with colleagues in mm-hmm. agriculture who are quite frustrated about this, but we can't will it away. We have a really difficult situation that a significant proportion of our emissions are from biogenic methane. And it's not okay to keep saying, well, this is a different kind of gas. It doesn't last long. This isn't washing Mm -hmm. in an international environment where we are really so slow to, to reduce our emissions that Yes, carbon is the big core gas that we have to reduce. It lasts forever. The fierce effects Mm -hmm. of methane and their high warming potential means we also have to reduce them in the short term. And this is a very difficult debate for farming. Bronwyn, I I wanted to ask about how that increased emphasis on doing things fast in the next decade changes things for New Zealand. Obviously, that means methane is almost more important because it has a – a bigger impact early on and you can't just sort of wait for it to go away in future to solve your problems. You have to use it as an opportunity to solve your problems now. And it also means that the typical political response when dealing with difficult issues like this Mm -hmm. is to put off the decision to say, well, we've got time. We've got time to do this. We'll deal with it later. And later is always better now when you've got these sorts of Mm -hmm. problems. But what it seems to me the message from the IPCC report this time is we don't have time to put it off. We actually have to front load our action in the next five or six years if we're going to, you know, really avoid some of the worst pain. Yes. I think that one of the things that's also different about this language that was debated mm-hmm. is and agreed by countries. So this isn't me. This is not the IPCC being activists, as I saw a couple of people said, you know, they've really jumped the shark. This is what the 196 governments signed off. And so it's not the Mm. scientists saying this. This is this government's agreed synthesis report. And so this is the new reality that New Zealand's going to have to deal with in its international diplomacy. One of the new realities is just the language of effect. So the government's agreed to say the choices and actions we make now will last for thousands of years. So they're affecting current generations and thousands, and it's very hard to get your head around every increment of warming matters. So even if we Mm. are going through 1.5, it's still better to live in a 1.7 world than a 2. And heaven's not a 2.8. Bronwyn, I was really struck by that. uh, that There was a very, very good Financial Times piece about staying within the 1.5. And it showed, as as they've done very well in terms of data journalism, and I can send it to you, but I'm sure you know it, but I'd love you to address it, the exponential change between 1.5 and 2. It isn't just like it's only half a degree because it's all it's all going up on a logarithmic basis. So it just spir- – you know, the difference between one, the impact of 1.5 and, and 2 is gigantic. Yes, and it's the intensity of the storms, the length of the droughts, and the fact that that's happening now. I think it's really interesting you should say that about the Financial Times because I've been following them closely mm. and they really have nailed a lot of this. Like, um, And I think that's because the insurance industry and their readers and business investment is thinking about this. It's not 
but dialing back to this question of what this means for New Zealand, it does mean that the nature of the of the conversations and the actions with mm. our trading partners, with our countries that we like to li- align ourselves with, is changing fast. So there is a big focus on human rights effects of these changes. There is a much greater focus on loss and damages, which opens up conversations about liability. Countries are not there at accepting liability, I should say, but they have accepted that there Mm -hmm. are inevitable losses and damages, ones we've already witnessed and ones that are coming. On the methane question, um, we, I think, well, not just methane, also carbon and transport for cities. I don't think New Zealand realises what an outlier mm. we are now. We are one of just a tiny number of countries who are not reducing our emissions. And that has a twofold effect. It means that within the country, people think, oh, this is too hard and impossible. Look, no one's doing it. Or it doesn't matter if we do it because you know we're, we're the equivalent of another of a neighbourhood in Beijing. Yeah. Well, let's be fast followers. Look, mm. it would be great if we were following someone, but we're not. We're out way on our own, just continuing to do business mm. as usual, la-la. Everyone else is reducing their emissions, even the neighbourhoods in Beijing, particularly the neighbourhoods in Beijing. We can debate whether or not those are being accurately recorded, mm-hmm. but there is much more intensity on the recording and focus of that. The US is reducing their emissions. They did so under Trump at a city level. They did so regionally. The UK is reducing their emissions. They have done for over a decade. So is the US. So we are in a very precarious position now to keep saying, oh, this is too hard. We need a special consideration for methane. Why should our dairy industry be given a special consideration and Norway Mm. or Saudi Arabia's oil and coal industries not? How do we avoid taking you into a political area in this? Because it's if, if you, I presume you you do actually advise the government to some extent on on climate policy. No, I can honestly say the government has never put, the only political yeah. party that's ever picked up the phone and asked me anything is National. So just as a quiet aside, I'm always happy to talk to anybody. But I am a political scientist, and we cannot. I mean, I can speak both to the IPCC, but also. Mm. We cannot, it's not activism now to talk about this in a in a way and when we're thinking about the policy choices. Now, the IPCC has to be careful. It only presents the range of choices that are available to governments. But now that governments have signed up to them, then mm. now my eight years con- uh, you know, work for the IPCC is finished, it is my role as a member of the Royal Society, as a policy analyst as a political scientist to talk about the implications of what that means and so yeah it's not activism it's just realism so Bronwyn, i was wondering um and if i'm a you know citizen a voter and i'm thinking okay well let's address this let's try to front load our emissions yeah. reductions you know address methane get our emissions from transport in the cities down what sort of policies should we be pursuing and more importantly what are the policies that are happening at the moment that we need to stop? Well, one of the good things, the last figure seven, which is a wee bit difficult to follow, it's a bar graph, but one of the things it finally does is say, look, what are the key policies that you can really make a big difference on? And one of them is around energy policies. So in the city context, that means reducing your fossil fuel emission transport, thinking about using mm. your urban planning tools to make sure your cities are more compact, but also greener, to keep them cooler, to keep them safer as ways of observing, uh, absorbing 
heat and water and flooding and to ensure that you're not continuing to build in places of high risk. A lot of cities have developed plans, particularly focused on physical infrastructure, but it's thinking Mm -hmm. about your green infrastructure and your social support for communities who are inevitably going to be hurt, particularly this IPCC report says if you've got very little funding, target your funding Mm -hmm. at the most economically and socially vulnerable because they're going to be the Mm -hmm. ones, and we've seen it already with Gisborne and this repeated, these repeated impacts of the flooding from Gabriel. At the farming level, this is a really tricky debate. It means that we have to look very hard at the argument that we should just wait for new technology that will reduce our methane impact because it's this decade that counts and the point of, of targeting methane is to get the quick heart fix. So that means thinking about how we actually support our agriculture to move away from higher methane dairy and deer farming, how we support a transition to other forms of agriculture they are going to actually really reduce farming impacts. Mm. And Hewaka Ekonoa has some great steps in it, actually how we make that really real now. Um, but, but Bromit, may I ask, is, is how much of this is just symbolic? Because one of the things that worries me when I look, look at what um, James Shaw has signed up to and the level of commitment that's involved in the in the COP27 commitments that New Zealand has made is towards offsetting this almost entirely or to a huge extent by buying offshore carbon credits and you know in markets that don't exist and um, I just you know it, it, someone mentioned on our on our um chat that you know talkback radio feeds into this as well and public opinion feeds into it I I'm just cannot really believe that New Zealanders will accept 15 billion dollars being invested in overseas carbon credits and it's it's like a promise. It's sort of a promissory note for the future. I agree, and I was intrigued by a comment that Adrian Macy made, and I haven't because I literally only got back today. I haven't had a chance to talk to him, but his concern is that those carbon credits that we're purchasing seem to be divorced from our exactly. actual mitigation and adaptation goals. So one of the things that the report says in detail is that if you are using economic transfer mechanisms. Make sure that you can see the benefit that people feel that there's a redistribution benefit that they can mm, see. Mm, exactly. In New Zealand, that's going to become politically really febrile, isn't it? Yes, but also internationally. I mean, every country is grappling with this. And we also want to know that those credits are real and are really making a difference. Um, and that's increasingly hard when you get to huge numbers. It's increasingly a challenge, it has been from the beginning, to make sure that those credits are really doing what we're hoping they're doing. But there's a lot of expertise in that. But in a way, we focused for so many years on emissions trading that there will be a place, there has to be a place for emissions trading. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. The rest of the world has moved on. And things like urban planning, you can't use emissions trading for land developers, for building, you actually have to use regulations and government decision-making in order to reduce your emissions and protect your population. Bromwood, I wanted to ask then about the announcements this week uh, about the emissions trading scheme. The Ministry of the Environment is going to do a review of, in particular, whether we can continue to have all of these pine forests 
planted, converting mm-hmm. sheep and beef farms into pine forests to get hold of these credits. Uh, there's a report out that upwards of there could be a 30% increase in the size of our pine forests if people respond to the mm-hmm. higher carbon credit prices we're supposed to be seeing. And questions have been asked about how we encourage people to do uh, native forests as well and also think less about using pine credits to save us the trouble of having to reduce our gross emissions. I wondered, what do you think about this sort of political economy problem of all of these forestry interests, including iwi, who say, Mm. well, we've got this land, we can plant these forests, we can get the money from the credits, win-win. What do you think? I haven't had enough time to read it in detail because I've just been focusing on the bigger debate. But yeah, there's some big social license issues, and the and because the game has changed, like the debate is rapid reductions now that are real reductions. Mm. Just capturing your carbon is not reducing it. So for a start, we need to get our head around the fact that we need to produce less, and. Second, we need to think hard about the social license. So forestry has got a social license crisis in two fronts, pine Mm. forestry. It's slash crisis and it's social community impact crisis. No one wants to live next to an enormous bank of carbon for Air New Zealand. You can't run rural primary schools and rural services Mm. when so much of your land is covered in pine it just if we've got if we've got clever people like you who know the who have a good sense of the policy areas where the answers need to come from why isn't it happening we've got clever people like you we've got you know good people in mfat is it just a, a sort of lack of political understanding i think we've had a massive lobby process in new zealand and and guy salmon put it really well you know when he said in that documentary hot air that was made a few years ago that we live in a company town and basically it's been um, unwelcome comments and we have really eroded social trust so that it's very difficult to talk in a way Mm, that, mm. oh, well, she's just a leftist, she doesn't understand farming, he's just a market hawk or something. Actually, we do have to rebuild this social trust and I think things like stuff making an editorial agreement about how it's going to cover Mm, climate has made a huge difference for a national distribution. But we need the ZB networks and things to do this as well because we can't be – we've got enough problems with rabbit holes in social media. We can't be dealing with conspiracy theory and polarisation around core topics. Yeah. You, mean, are, you, mean, you mean we have to, we have to make a – as journalists, we have to make a commitment to the best science, science available. These are issues of national security. Mm. You know, these are issues where we have to say, look, I'm sure that you would like to pretend this isn't a problem, but it is. So let's accept that. I was staggered to be interviewed by ABC and they said, but, you know, is climate change really real? I thought, <laughs> how can we be still asking this in 2023? Yeah. I just wondered, uh, uh, Bronwyn, too, uh, about this issue of the election coming up. We've got National saying, for example, this week that they would still not allow agriculture into the emissions trading scheme. We've got comments from the likes of Simeon Brown that there is a war on cars being launched by the government. This week, Wayne Brown, the mayor of Auckland, announced cuts of $100 million to public transport spending and also a whole bunch of community groups, not to mention 
the fact that he's decided to try and stop uh, the or slow down the building mm. of new cycle lanes and walkways and basically says that we need to be much more focused on helping car drivers retain car parks and move into, you know, uh, roads that are much more efficient and less congested and spend less time building mm. transport networks. I mean, at what point do, you know, the so-called grown-ups, the elected representatives, at what point do, can we call bullshit on them? About 20 years ago, <laughs> we haven't. <laughs> I mean, this is why I think uh, media matters as well. You know, this is an easy culture war to have, and it will just put us back so far. Mm. It's bad enough that we had an urban-rural split. We have to get over that. But it's also not okay that we are still talking about magical technology, that we're not talking about integrated decision-making. Um, no party is, at the moment, no party is really talking about fundamentally integrating our actions to cut um, emissions with our actions to protect people. Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't know. It's a little bit of an existential crisis for me, actually, coming back and teaching politics today to a lovely group of Stage 1 students who are all young leaders, and I think... Bloody hell. <laughs> well, I think we have the right podcast for you to appear on regularly, Bronwyn, if you want to. I mean, we, we actually do, we'll do an environment. I mean, you're so – It's what, what are you going to do with your with not being on the IPCC anymore? Well, I'm not going to do anything for a week <laughs> or two. <laughs> but um, one of the things I think really matters is now – and watching how the world's debates are going, and every country's having the same debate, that we have to get some – good practice out there and show what we can do. So we've got a fantastic project following children growing up in cities around the world and how we can intervene in those cities to give people quality of life in low-carbon ways. And getting those results out matters very much. We've got a project fund that was funded by the UK Economic and Social Search Council with Surrey and five other partner universities. And we've got a project that's funded by the Deep South supporting Pacific and Māori young leaders because their communities will be at the front line. So it's thinking about how we build capacity for new leadership. But that has to happen fast. And in the meantime, yeah, I've turned my research group into a charitable Mm -hmm. think tank because I just think for longer term future generations, these issues really matter now. And it just allows me to put consultancy funding into new you know, young leaders that are coming through in their research scholarships. And so bringing it home, really, I just think focusing very intensely on projects that work matters. And I think you've got wonderful Robert Patman about to be. I wished Robert had been with us in many of the international debates. Oh, we think of him as wonderful Robert Patman too. And now we think of you as fabulous Bronwyn Hayward. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. No, no, thanks, Bronwyn. It's really, we might come back to you on the media question. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. It's lovely to see you, Robert. Thank you so much. Ah, here's Natalia now. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. There she is. Hi, Natalia. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. Welcome to New Zealand's most important uh, podcast, news podcast. You have Professor Robert Patman, who is a friend of the pod, as we say on in this you know global podcasting world. You've also got Bernard Hickey, who is my co-host, or I'm the co-host on his podcast. And we're just thrilled to have you in from Tbilisi in Georgia to discuss Putin why we need to think about Georgia, what the precedent of Georgia shows uh, for how we need to think about Ukraine. And, of course, you've got experience in tracking Putin now, tracking Russia's behavior for many years. So tell us – tell us that we, Robert is a professor of, in, of international studies at, at – at, I was going to say Oxford University, Otago University in New Zealand, um, which is the Otago of the uh, – Oxford of the Southern Hemisphere. 
Natalia, you're the co-founder of Coda Story. You're sitting in Tbilisi. You've just gone through a a, a really interesting crisis in Tbilisi with the government, which I, I think you would argue is is somewhat Russian influenced, uh, certainly oligarch influenced, which tried to bring in a uh, foreign agent law, i.e., deciding that local media, human rights groups, and so on, very much like they've done in Russia. But the the government decided not to push it through in the end. What's what's going on in Georgia that we should think about right now? And then we'll talk about the the 2008 invasion a little bit. Um, hi, first of all, and real pleasure to be here. Sorry for being a bit late. I think the most important, um, kind of the easiest way to understand what's going on to Georgia is to think of it as really the second front of the war in Ukraine. Mm. And it's very telling how Georgian public perceives that war in Ukraine. You know, uh, ask any Georgian, most of them will probably blank on like, I don't know, who is the in Minister of Infrastructure of Georgia at the moment, but they will tell you who it is in Ukraine. I mean, every minister like is a household name. Every detail of the war is being very closely followed. There are Georgians that are, who are fighting in in Ukraine. Um, and uh, there is very much, you know, the, the, the city is full of the Ukrainian flags. There is a very, very clear m- sense of feeling that this is, this is Georgia's war too. And that's because Georgia has been there uh, many times. Also because uh, Georgia and Ukraine has always sided historically against Russia as an oppressor. And, you know, Ukrainians have fought in the wars that Georgia has uh, fought against Russia in the 90s and so on. So there's a lot of history there. But while there is that, th- that very clear sense of alignment with Ukraine among the public, Georgia also has a government that takes a very different position. Mm. And they take a very different position. They can't do it very openly because the country is very, you know, both pro-Ukraine and pro-Western. And the, the reason it is pro the public, the public. And, you know, it's almost hard. You, you know, Georgia is a tiny place that is stuck between and has been stuck for, for it throughout its history between these giant neighbors who have always come through and invaded and you know, the country has survived despite the odds, whether it's been the Persians, the Mongols, the Persians, the Turks, most recently the Russians. And since the independence of the Soviet Union, for, um, of Georgia from the Soviet Union, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the country has made a very clear choice that it wanted the only way for Georgia to protect its sovereignty and to to stay as a state was to choose a Western path, mm. basically align itself with the West, align itself with Europe. Which it, which it did really even under Shavadnadze and then un, certainly under, under Shakashvili uh, once independence came. Very much so. In the, uh, under, since Shavadnadze, that's been a constant. In yeah. 2012, the new government, which is elected by the Georgian people, this is, this is a democ- mm. initially at least a democratically elected government. Um, in 2012, the elections that we've had since have been very dubious on many levels, but there there is no question that there's been enough public support for them. They never publicly changed the geopolitical course of the country, a course that is written into the country's constitution, right? The Georgian constitution says, you know, they are, are the future of Georgia is with like, with Europe as with, with the West. The Georgian dream, so-called Georgian dream party is run by 
And then an oligarch who made all of his money in Russia, he came to power in 2011, and he very slowly, uh, but very steadily and surely but he he's he's doing it remotely isn't he natalia he's doing he's not actually in parliament. no no he's in the country yeah. no 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 but he's not doing he's, it oh no, that's right no he's not a puppet. he's a puppet master right mm-hmm. he's the godfather figure he's the ultimate godfather figure he's richer than anyone else in the country he's richer than the country itself he has more money than uh than the country <laughs> and uh, so it, there's no competition whatsoever it makes it a really unique situation kind of globally you know yeah. it also poses the question well how do you get rid of someone like that and he has over the years basically destroyed the opposition with their own help as well he has very kind of surely and steadily taken the country off the western path without declaring that he's doing that publicly because he know he couldn't do that and he kind of you know went kind of returned it to the soviet path towards pushed it closer and closer towards russia and that became especially apparent since the war in ukraine because i think the government of georgia he personally i suspect and the government in general that is working for him uh rather than you know for george's mm. interests as we have seen recently they have taken a very ambivalent position on ukraine without openly saying that oh yeah. we're not for this war but very much very much saying we don't want to be part of it are they still letting russians who want to avoid the draft come into georgia because that was a big phenomenon a couple of months ago when the when it was clear that there was going to be another mass mobilization are, are they still allowing russians to come in to escape the draft? Oh, yeah. The Russians are still coming in. Mm. That uh, sort of tsunami that we saw happen in in September, there were two massive waves. One when the war started, lots of Russians came in, uh, fleeing the war, you know, or fleeing the incon- fleeing the inconveniences mm. of the Putin's uh, increasingly um, authoritarian regime uh, and their new lives under sanctions, and some genuinely fleeing because it was became too gene dangerous because. You know, there were, everyone was declared a foreign agent. So lots of, lots of these people came, sort of people in opposition to the war, to Putin. And then we had another massive wave mm-hmm. in September when Russians declared, um, the full mobilization. Yeah. And they're, they're still coming in and out. And, but yeah, there were, there, there are no like waves like that. And, and if we go back a little bit to 2008, and this is where Robert, we, we might bring, uh, Professor Patman in as well with you, because I, I find it so interesting. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot, um, Robert's just, Robert basically lives on this podcast with us, which we're very grateful for, is the idea of a frozen conflict. And of course, in 2008, Russia intervened to bring back Abkhazia into the, and, and took, I think, 25% of, of Georgian territory, fought against Georgia. Uh, my recollection is that Sarkozy, I think it was, tried to, tried to come in and, and intervene. Shakashvili was the prime minister at the president at the time. You know, you're living adjacent to one of these, you know, part of your country is one of these frozen conflicts. Uh, I mean, one of the great coda stories that I've read and that I, I mentioned to people is, the the little old man who lives on the border, who's who, and the Russian soldiers who at night come and creep out and put the border another meter or two further out. You know, it's a really intimidating 
thing to have this frozen conflict just right there. Yeah, it's not. I mean, frozen conflict is a very convenient term for uh, for Russians themselves. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's really important to understand that what's happening in Ukraine today did not start in February of 20, um, 2022, mm. it was, wasn't it? And it didn't start in 2014 when Russians annexed Crimea. It started in 2008 uh, with the Russian invasion of Georgia, but arguably it started even earlier, back in the 1990s when Russians, you know, determined um, to keep the pieces of empire in some shape or form. Obviously, Russia itself was in complete chaos, but so many of the things that we see playing out in Ukraine today are from the playbook that Mm. Russia started writing in the 1990s, which is you know, find a tiny existing tension, fan the flames of it, turn it into a conflict, play a role yeah, of a peacekeeper. Yeah, exactly what they did in the Donbass and, you know, yeah. Exactly. They did it in Georgia with Abkhazia, in South Ossetia. They did it, uh, they've done it with Armenia and Azerbaijan, slightly different, different conflict. It was two countries rather, you know, three countries rather than now more. So, I mean, uh, each of these conflicts has... Its own, obviously, nuances and peculiarities and, and so on. But ultimately, a Russian role in them yeah. is almost identical. Stir up trouble and then come in as someone who is like saving everyone and freeze the conflict. And yeah. it's really important to understand that having with a, like living with a, with, with a frozen conflict is basically, being a person living with an amputated limb, you can't fully develop mm. or, you know, become what it is for that you want to become. You must never know what the next step is going to be. Robert, how, what do you think about these, this, this concept of the, you know, we, we see it now with the attempts to destabilize Moldova. We've seen it in, um, in, in Ukraine, obviously with, with the Donbass instance, you know, for years now and the invasion of, of Crimea. You know, there's there's a number of these kind of pressure points that Putin is extremely skillful at mm. at manipulating. Yes, thank you very much, Natalia. That was really fascinating. Um, uh, Mr. Putin, of course, in in terms of declaratory policy, has always claimed it's NATO enlargement that has led to the sort of encro- encroachments that Natalia has just been uh, articulating and outlining for us. Whereas, in fact, I think really, you know, uh, Russia's imperial ambitions, indeed, it's a determination to establish a sphere of influence is the real reason and what this is what we're seeing in both Georgia and in Ukraine at the moment Mr Putin's definition of friendly neighbors in the near abroad is neighbors which are responsive to Russian influence and mm. particularly the influence of his regime there's two points here which I think we need to bring out firstly Mr Putin's regime is a deeply unattractive one in political terms and therefore he has to resort to coercive, albeit covert, interference in the neighbours because, in a sense, of course he's fearful about Western influence because the alternative that his regime presents is deeply unattractive. He has monopolised political power for 22 years, which is hardly an easy sell when you're trying to uh, influence and make friends overseas uh, or in the near abroad. I I think the, the second point to make with regard to this is that Mr. Putin is extremely worried about democratic evolution in Georgia, Ukraine. Why? Because ultimately, it's all about regime survival Mm. for Mr. Mm. Putin. He's killed too many people in Russia to go to a comfortable retirement. 
Therefore, he has to basically look to stay in power as long as possible. And I think what really rattled him, I'd be interested to hear Natalia's point of view about this, was, you know, the the protests, the popular protests that occurred in Belarus and also in Kazakhstan mm. in the last two years, because it was almost, it must have been to Mr. Putin, you can imagine almost the panic in the Kremlin, that from his point of view, while countries like Ukraine are around and they're democratic, there's always the threat that ideas will cross borders and inspire young people in Moscow and elsewhere. So I think, in a sense, this interference is done out of weakness, not strength. A, the Russian political system under Mr. Putin is unattractive, and therefore that's the only way, really, the regime can project influence by uh, picking up issues and basically stirring the pot and uh, backing um, people with money and fine, you know, money and support that is favourable to the Russian line in these respective countries, whether it be in Georgia or Ukraine. And secondly, uh, I think the regime is extremely nervous. I mean, Mr. Putin's worst nightmare must be the democratic development of Russia's neighbours, mm. because that will only increase, I think, the prospect of some sort of groundswell of opposition in Russia. And, you know, it, it's very interesting to me that a number of Western diplomats and commentators have basically bought into the line articulated by the Kremlin that it was NATO enlargement that's driving all these troubles. And if NATO hadn't expanded, Mr. Putin would have been having very amicable relations with Georgia, with all these other countries, which I don't really think is true. Natalia, what, do what does that sound like to you? I mean, Robert's a, a highly skilled academic. You're, you're living in one of these countries and also you, you, you and your team report on it about Russia from Russia as much as you can. Does that sound like a like a sort of logical view about Putin's approach? Is it is it just this kind of? I mean, is he concerned about what's happening on the, on the borders? Because it was very noticeable to me with those Georgian protests the other day. There seemed to be a very young side of it. You know, it, it really seemed to be young people. But maybe that was that was a mistake. The point that Robert is making is basically, yeah, the total bullseye. Um, absolutely. That whole myth that has been built around NATO enlargement. Um, and the way that plenty of academics in the West, uh, people on, you know, both kind of the, um, less on the right, interestingly, but more so now is like, is the shoehorn kind of mm. like joins up, but especially like left, um, of the spectrum have bought in to that argument that, well, it's the NATO enlargement. It's the NATO enlargement. That is just simply not true. I mean, first of all, the idea that Russia should be threatened by, you know, Ukraine or Georgia joining NATO. I mean, really? I mean, look at, a, look at the map. Look at how much territory Russia's mm. got. What has got Russia to worry about? That's one. And secondly, the only reason that countries like Ukraine and Georgia want to join NATO is because that's the only way they can protect themselves from Russia. Georgia... Because mm, they've got experience. Because they know what it... Yeah, exactly. And Georgia, and that's something that never gets really mentioned or talked about, under Saakashvili, Georgia was uh, Saakashvili's government made it very clear that Georgia was happy to give up its NATO aspirations mm. 
for return of its territorial integrity, for return of the breakaway provinces, and never join NATO again, never talk about joining NATO. The response to that was the Russian invasion. And I remember covering the the war in Georgia, you know, and if, um, you know, the, the, the shells of bombs that fell on Georgian villages and towns had often handwritten, just like white handwritten painted signs for NATO. So... Mm. So that whole myth that was built, like, it's all about NATO, it's all about NATO, you know. I mean, yeah, it has become about it, but uh, but we need to look at the root cause of the problem here. And the fact that this is actually about sovereignty. It's not about NATO's imperial expansion. It's about the right of countries that feel threatened to decide who their friends are, who can help them protect their sovereignty. Natalia, you have... A good context in, inside Russia. What level of, um, and we, you know, we also know that those people from Medusa and so on who try to report about Russia from now outside as exiles. What, what level of resistance or disagreement is visible or, or happening inside Russia? It's a very depressing question. Uh, I think what's palpable is, um, and again, speak to someone who is outside, but I am talking to people in Russia and a lot of people who, are going in and out and, um, uh, many Russians. Um, what's palpable is not the resistance. What's palpable is, um, acceptance of the mm-hmm. war. And that's the scariest thing about this war and about what the future holds. Because I think the majority, you know, it's, this is often referred to as Putin's war. Sadly, I think it's Russia's war. I think most Russians have gone along with it. I think the ones who didn't agree with it have got out, but there are plenty of people who got out who actually don't mind the war so much. They just want the convenience of living somewhere. So, yeah, I don't think there's much. I mean, there are incredibly brave individuals who, you know, this video went around yesterday of this, like, lone guy on a Russian street with a placard that says, hug me if you're against the war and people (laughs) coming up to him and hugging him. And he was, he was arrested, of course. I mean, the level of repression is unbelievable. There's no question that is incredibly, incredibly dangerous to mm, protest publicly uh, in Russia in any way. You know, Russians have adopted this. Look, I have, I have relatives in Moscow who are, one of those pe- people, they've, they've adopted this sort of safe style of like, we are beyond politics. Mm-hmm. We're not interested in politics. And we're just, you know, this is, this is something that's happening in parallel. We're just living our lives. And that is more, pre- kind of more widespread than a survival I think it was mechanism. In the Soviet Union. Yeah. And it is, you can call it a survival me- mechanism. It's, um, but it's ultimately, it's an incredibly, incredibly dangerous complacency that got us to where we are today. N- Natalia, I'm going to do this for, for Bernard because it'll bring in Robert as well. The, the Xi, the Xi Jinping visit, um, these two alleged chums and the two alleged best friends. What, what, to, Robert, what do you, what do you make of what you've seen from it? And then I'll ask Natalia the same question. I think China is conflicted because, on the one hand, it doesn't want to see the collapse of the Putin regime because, after all, Xi Jinping seems to have had about 39 or 40 meetings with Hmm. Vladimir Putin since Xi came to power. And so he probably sees this authoritarian regime in Moscow as a junior partner. So I I think there's an expression of solidarity with Putin. On the other hand... Mr. 
Xi and his foreign po- uh, policy advisor, chief foreign policy advisor, have received direct warnings from both the United States and the EU, two of the three biggest export markets for China, that should they arm Mr. Putin's military, then there'll be severe sanctions which will affect China's exports to both the US and the EU. And I don't think these are idle threats. Mm. And the Chinese leadership know that this would have severe political problems for Xi's leadership in China. So in a sense, Xi is sort of talking tough, supporting this illegal invasion of Ukraine, trying to play the peacemaker, although he must know that his brand of neutrality doesn't cut it, basically, internationally. I found the meeting between Putin and Xi looking at it and reading about it very interesting because there seems to be fast-tracking an agreement for a joint venture to send Russian energy, oil and Mm -hmm. gas to China, which is an interesting development. But we still haven't seen any tangible sign that China is actually increasing its Mm -hmm. military support or uh, Russia. Um, I stand to be corrected. I don't know. That that seems to be the view at the moment. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think China has shot itself in the, in the, in the foot in, in terms of global opinion, or at least, at least in opinion within the liberal democratic area. I, I think there's quite a big division within the Chinese leadership about Xi backing Putin. Because, after all, what Mr. Putin is doing is undermining some of the core principles of Chinese foreign policy, which is respect for territorial integrity mm. and state sovereignty, which, is, after all, Chinese claims to Taiwan and Hong Kong always mm. are based on those principles. So it's puzzling. Maybe she just sees political advantage in consolidating Putin as a junior partner, trying to give him what support he can. I, I think, you know, the Chinese have always seen Russia as a junior partner. It's very much a marriage of convenience. I'm puzzled why she has gone to the lengths he's already gone, because Mr. Putin's in deep trouble, and the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive will come. Robert, uh, just um, diving a bit more into that relationship between Russia and China, and I was struck in listening to Natalia. Uh, Natalia used the phrase complacency and talked about what a an authoritarian government system, how it operates, which in New Zealand, we Mm. we just sort of hard, it's hard to imagine. I mean, we feel confident saying pretty much anything to anyone and we could put a sign around our neck and know that we weren't going to be arrested. Well, Um, it depends on the sign, but yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, Robert, you know, the Australians are taking a much more robust and some would say here too strong a view about um, pushing back at China. What's your view on, you know, AUKUS, the, the acquisition of uh, nuclear submarines, and whether New Zealand should be just as robust as the Australians and be less complacent about China? But are they being robust? I mean, the, the argument is I'm not convinced that joining AUKUS is the best way to counter Chinese influence. The crucial thing we have to note here is that some of the countries which are even more concerned about Chinese assertiveness – Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, do not see AUKUS, three English-speaking countries, coming together and declaring that they're going to protect the rules-based order for Indo-Pacific, which is 
60 percent of the world's population. A better arrangement would be a much more inclusive arrangement, which brought together countries, all countries which felt threatened by China. China is actually using AUKUS as a bit of a propaganda Mm. gift, reminding Mm. countries in the region that the British have form in the Indo-Pacific, its imperial past, and the Americans have a track Mm. record, which is questionable with regard to their participation in the Vietnam War. So actually, it seems to me that AUKUS, in a sense, it's commendable that it's sending a message to China, but I'm not sure it's an effective message, and I'm not sure it's the best way or the most effective way of countering China's influence. It seems a bit like a a coalitioning of the willing as opposed to a robust, broad-based, multilateral Mm. arrangement. Natalia, how how are you reading the the Xi meetings? I don't completely agree on the... Mm, on one point that Robert makes that China has shot itself in the food when it comes to the global order. I think what is happening, you know, I think my reading of it is that China was on a fence for a really long time. I think China was pissed off about this invasion at the start because, I mean, they, the two have clearly built a very much, much closer relationship through the pandemic. And mm, apparently the diplomatic traffic between Moscow and Beijing throughout the pandemic was through the roof. You know, there was a lot was going on. And, you know, in our reporting, we definitely saw it was in that period during the pandemic that we saw a much more unified messaging from the Russian, the Chinese, and then subsequently the Iranian state media outlets. Mm. I mean, we now regularly see that a message pushed out by the Russians will be picked up and spread far and wide by the Chinese and the Iranians as well. And I think we should not underestimate how much that message is heard outside of the Western world. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. you, Africa, Asia, parts of Latin America, I think Latin America is, is different and I don't understand it as well. But I think, you know, that, that message in Africa, for example, that message really, Russia's message really resonates. Mm. Russian soft power really resonates. And much of the world is on the fence about Ukraine. Uh, for some of it, for very good reasons, because it is seen as, as the West's pet project. You know, it's seen as a, as a proxy war. Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because what, what I've done also, Natalia, is I've shared everybody, shared with everybody codastory.com. But you run a special disinformation newsletter, which really deals with some of these issues about how information is is spread in this way and how how effective as a tool it is. Yeah, that's right. And we um, we track a lot of this um, sort of patterns and themes. And I think the narratives that have emerged and Russia has always positioned itself as um, the anti-colonial mm. global power, which looks ridiculous if you're sitting in Georgia or Estonia or Ukraine, but sells very well if you are in Mali and your problem are the French, right? Yeah. Um, and they have really doubled down on that since the war. And incredibly, it has worked. So Natalia, Robert, thank you so thank much you. for coming on. Natalia, it's particularly to you. I, I really appreciate it. I know it's a favor to me and I really um, greatly appreciate it. If you don't mind, I might connect you to Robert because I think you'd be a really interesting pair. And it's lovely to see you, Natalia, and I'll see you shortly. Thank you, Natalia. And we'll make sure Thank that you so much for having me. We link out the, the podcast to everyone with your Twitter handles and thank things. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. Kakite anō.